Saturday at 5 p.m. Democracy Now!'s War and Peace Report provides our audience with access to people and perspectives rarely heard in the U.S. corporate-sponsored media, including independent and international journalists and ordinary people from around the world who are directly affected by U.S. foreign policy. For alternative news analysis, tune into Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman weekdays at 8 a.m. for the headlines and 5 p.m. for the complete hour, only on Community Radio WERU-FM. Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. It is 4 o'clock. It is time for Main Currents. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, January 4th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today, we're doing both a year in review and a look ahead for Maine Currents. We've got some clips lined up from 2016, and in between, we'll be opening the phone lines and inviting you to call in with suggestions about local news, views, and culture that you'd like us to cover in 2017. We'd also love to hear any of your comments looking back on 2016 or any of your hopes and wishes as we move ahead into the new year. The phone number into the studio is 469-0500 locally, again 469-0500, and toll free it's 1-866-625-9378. Again, 1-866-625-9378. Most of these clips are pretty brief. The longest one is just under eight minutes long, but most are much shorter than that. So if you call while we're playing a clip, John can let you know how much longer there is to wait and put you on hold so you'll be ready after the clip is done. This first one we're going to play is from uh, January 13th, 2016 program when there were movements underway to impeach Governor LePage. Tomorrow will be a historic day in Augusta as orders to impeach Governor LePage will be introduced and debated by the Maine House of Representatives. And whether the impeachment order sponsored by Representative Ben Chipman along with other several other co-sponsors ultimately succeeds or not, sponsors or supporters say the governor's behavior must be addressed. Today on Maine Currents, we'll be talking with some of the grassroots organizers behind the efforts to impeach LePage. And later in the program, we should be hearing from Representative Chipman as well. And we'll be opening the phone lines in the second half of the show because we want to hear what you think about this issue. Joining me today in the studio are Hendrick Gideons and Rebecca Hallbrook, two of the leaders of the Citizens Movement to Impeach the Governor. Hendrick Gideons retired from a career in education policy research and administration. He has served as a selectman in Brooklyn and has worked with the Democratic Party and state legislators on a wide variety of issues. Most recently, he's been focusing on government oversight of LePage following the Goodwill Hinckley scandal and on efforts to impeach the governor for that and other offenses. Rebecca Hallbrook is a retired attorney and a volunteer for several different Maine nonprofits, including several environmental organizations, as well as her church. And she serves on the board of directors of the Kennebec Estuary Land Trust and Maine Share. She was also outraged by the governor's threats to withhold funding from the Goodwill Hinckley School as retribution for hiring Speaker Mark Eaves, which resulted in Eaves losing that job. She and a Republican friend joined forces to call for an investigation. They held a rally that drew 300 citizens after only four days' notice via social media last year. They launched the website DearLePage.com and ran an ad in the Coastal Journal to encourage citizens to ask Governor LePage to resign. And they promoted an online petition for impeachment that collected over 20,000 signatures. (coughs) Copies of those signatures were delivered to the governor's office last week at a rally that took place last Wednesday. Welcome to Maine Currents, Rebecca Halbrook, and welcome back, Hendrick Gideons. He's been here before. We're glad you both could make it today. Uh, The order that will be introduced tomorrow calls for a special committee to investigate allegations of misconduct, and it lists several. So let's start off the program by running down through what these allegations of misconduct entail. And maybe we could take turns uh, reading from this um, order and start with Rebecca Halbrook. 
Uh, it provides the committee shall conduct a comprehensive review of allegations of misconduct by Governor LePage, including but not limited to the following. The number one uh, reason is refusal beginning in 2012 to facilitate the issuance of land conservation bonds that were ratified by the voters of the state in statewide elections held in November 2010 and November 2012, and the governor's repeated insistence on extracting compliance from the legislature on unrelated issues prior to his carrying out the will of the people of the state regarding issuance of the bonds. Uh, second, the alleged use of state assets as leverage to bring about the resignation in 2013 of the president of the World Acadian Congress, Jason Parent. And that's a, a subject that people are less familiar with than the Mark Eve story, but a similar kind of thing. That's correct. And the third is exertion of pressure in March 2013 on hearing officers in the Bureau of Unemployment Compensation of the Maine Department of Labor to favor employers in their decision-making. A fourth is refusal beginning in May 2013 to allow cabinet members and members of the administration to appear and testify before legislative committees. Next, alleged use of state assets as leverage to bring about the resignation in, 20, in January 2015 of the Maine Community College System President John Fitzsimmons. Uh, the next was requesting in February 2015 that the Maine Human Rights Commission postpone a proceeding against a particular business pending before the commission and threatening to withhold state assets when the commission declined to postpone the proceeding. And then creation in April 2015 without public notice in violation of the Maine Freedom of Access Act of a panel to conduct a review of the Maine Human Rights Commission. And the last was the alleged use of state assets as leverage to intimidate the Board of Directors of Goodwill Hinckley in June 2015 into terminating its employment of Mark W. Eaves, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And that's just a clip from that uh, program that aired Maine Currents back on January 13th of last year, as we all know how that issue turned out. But there's a lot more information about that if you want to go to the archives at WERU.org. Again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU, and we will be doing a year in review, playing some clips from 2016, give you a sample of some of the things that we covered in 2016. Uh, you can hear the full programs on the archives, as I said, at WERU.org. Just go to Public Affairs Archives and then down the side column to Main Currents or whichever program here at WERU. Our locally produced uh, programs are all there, and you can download them or listen on your computer. So moving ahead to February of last year, this next program uh, featured a report on a town meeting that had taken place in Bucksport, about the uh, fact that the town had signed on as an intervener in the case, uh, which is known as Janet Mills v. Penobscot Nation, about the river rights. We've reported on that pretty extensively. But the issue at this particular meeting was that the new town councilors, and including a couple who had been there when this action was taken, sounded like they didn't really know what they were signing on to. And uh, so... Sherry Mitchell, an indigenous rights attorney from the Penobscot Nation, who's also a regular here on WERU, was one of many people who spoke that night to let the council know what was really going on before they voted on whether or not to withdraw as interveners. So here is Sherry at that town council meeting in February uh, or perhaps late January of uh, 2016. <laughs> My name is Sherry Mitchell. I'm from the Penobscot Nation, and I'm also an Indigenous rights attorney. And, of course, we care about the relationships going forward. I think that's really important that we all need to be discussing this. It's also really important to examine, um, based on what you were led to believe was the cause for you entering into this case um, and your new position today. It's important to have that discussion, but I think what's most important from a legal perspective is understanding the misinformation that was given to you that's in your resolution. 
so this resolve says, whereas the Penobscot um, Indian Nation <coughs> seeks to establish that it, not the state, has exclusive jurisdiction over the Penobscot River surrounding and north of Indian Island, um, is false. The second one, uh, it's the third whereas. The lawsuit could have significant consequences for non-Indian waste discharge licenses that discharge into the river or one of its tributaries is false. It's legally false. There is standing law that addresses those issues. You have been egregiously misled. <clears throat> I, and, I, and I appreciate that, but none of us were here, and that's why we're fixing this right now. For However, it's trying. still important <laughs> that you are town council members who are now addressing a resolve by the town of Bucksport that is based on misinformation that was purposely fed to you by another law firm and by industry. And I think that that's something that is very, very important and that's something that needs to be addressed. That's something that needs to be made part of this record. Okay. <clears throat> Whereas the environmental and land use practice group at Pierce Atwood is leading a coalition in support of the attorney general in this matter, um, they're leading for industry that is not part of your group. They have been hired by industry from outside the area with big bucks, deep pockets, to protect a right going forward because there's already been an establishment about what the rights are standing right now. And if you looked at the petition by the tribe, um, one of the things that would become very clear to you is that this case has absolutely nothing to do with discharge. This is hunting, trapping, and other taking of wildlife for the sustenance um, of the individual members of the Penobscot Nation. Um, and this case has never been about discharge. In fact, in the state's petition, it says that the tribe's position um, is that all non-tribal use of the main stem is allowed pursuant to existing law that says that the right to pass and repass any of the river's streams and ponds which run through the lands of the Penobscot Nation are deemed to be access allowed. This has already been decided by previous legal action. Um, the tribe does not and has never asserted that their rights include the right to exclude non-tribal members from these waters. They have never claimed that they have the right to have any type of um, jurisdiction over the discharge of non-tribal industry ever and that was established long ago and so for a group of attorneys to come in here and to present this position which is so blatantly false which has absolutely nothing to do with this case to you as a town should be very concerning to you and the fact that you're now having to compliment uh, uh, consider paying money out of your town's coffers to remove yourself from a case that you were misled into in the first place should be very troubling to you as a town. And I think that when you think about this and when you consider what your options are moving forward, and I think that Judge Maynard is going to talk about um, some of the other legalities and also about how Orono extricated themselves from the case because he's a citizen of the town of Orono and he was part of that process, um, that you ought to strongly consider how to make those who misled you responsible for paying for your extrication from this case. Because this is by no fault of your own. You are operating under false assumptions. You were led into this case through misinformation. And it should not be your financial responsibility, now that you have accurate information, to remove yourselves from this case. So, for what it's worth. Thank you. That was Sherry Mitchell speaking in Bucksport. I believe that was late January. The program aired on February 3rd, and I think it was the week prior to that 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 town council meeting took place. But they did vote. Bucksport did vote to remove themselves as interveners, and there was, I don't think, official action taken, but there was definitely discussion. John, you were there as well at that meeting. Uh, there was definitely some discussion of the town looking into trying to find out how it was that they were uh, led into signing on to that without really understanding 
what it was that they were signing on to. Right. At, l- at least one of the councillors uh, in attendance at that evening was, in fact, at the meeting with that it was decided to to join the uh, uh, the, the lawsuit, and, and he just couldn't remember. It was a little bit yeah. embarrassing for them. Yeah. Sorry, I should have introduced that's Sean Greenman, our engineer, who's in the other room. I'm, j- I'm asking him to jump in and join me here today. We have no guests in the studio. We're just playing some clips from some of our 2016 programs. You're welcome to call in at any time uh, with suggestions about what you'd like me. Uh, currents, which is independent local news, views, and culture to be covering in 2017, anything that you're hoping and wishing for in 2017, and any thoughts as we move far, far away from 2016. Uh, yeah, that one counselor in listening to this again and editing out this piece said that he really did not understand what it was, that he actually thought they were just signing on to something that would help keep them in the loop as far as information goes about the um, the state's fight with the Penobscot Nation about control over the river. And uh, in the end, though, the Bucksport Town Council did vote to withdraw as interveners, as Orono had done prior to them. You heard that mentioned. So uh, the phone number here is 469-0500, 469-0500 locally or 1-866-625-9378. If you call while a clip is playing, um, you may be on hold for a couple of minutes, but we'll get you on as soon as the clip is done. And John can even tell you about how long it's going to be. Most of these are just maybe four or five minutes long. This next one's about four minutes long. This is uh, a clip that is recorded from one of the many speakers who spoke at a hearing um, that about the FT or the the uh, TPP, which many of you have heard of now, you've heard that um, uh, President-elect Trump has said that he opposes it. It's been called NAFTA on steroids and the largest corporate power grab you've never heard of, although more people have heard of it now. Uh, early last year, there was a um, meeting when people spoke out or late the prior year for the main uh, Citizen Trade Commission, which was put together to look at how previous agreements like NAFTA and CAFTA had affected jobs here in Maine, which has been pretty well covered, and the answer is not well. And he made a distinguish this next speaker, which we're going to hear from is Dennis Chinoy of PICA, and uh, he talked about how those prior agreements had impacted communities in Central and South America but we hadn't really seen anything yet like what we would be seeing if TPP passed. So this is Dennis Chinoy speaking at that. Uh, this is a program that aired on uh, February 10th, 2016, if you want to listen to the whole thing. Dennis Chinoy is a Bangor resident and volunteer with PICA, Power and Community Alliances, an organization that works on social justice issues at home and across borders. He's seen the impact of earlier trade agreements in places like Central and South America. Ever since NAFTA and later CAFTA, it's been clear that such agreements are not win-win propositions for all concerned, as was initially advertised. Rather, these agreements create winners and losers, so it behooves us to understand just who gains and who suffers. You know this because the Maine Trade Policy Commission was in fact created in order to evaluate how Maine's businesses, consumers, and ordinary citizens may positively or negatively be affected by trade pacts. Free trade agreements are less about tariffs than about provisions labeled non-tariff barriers to trade, which are all about who can sell what to whom and who can or can't stop them. The what mostly isn't about shirts or bananas or toaster ovens, but items we never imagined could or should be for sale. The barriers in question are current laws that assume that goods and services essential to all of us shouldn't be privately owned, unsafe, or priced out of range of those who need them. So I'm here to talk as well about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. NAFTA and CAFTA primary adverse effect on Maine was widespread industrial job loss and jobs which likely won't return. But the TPP threatens all Mainers in ways way beyond lost jobs as well, threats that under previous trade pacts were technically possible, but mostly hypothetical. Um, If the TPP passes, many protections we take for granted will be at risk because the TPP will permit foreign investors to sue governments, and you've heard that before, so I won't 
dwell on it. But here's a, a quick cross-border uh, detour. If you ask Bangor's Salvadoran sister city residents what free trade means, they will answer much more simply. They say, the big fish eat the little fish. And they know that their countries south of the border are the little fish. So in the past, it's been the Bolivian town of Cochabamba whose water rights the Bechtel Corporation bought and then charged townspeople fees for collecting rainwater from their own roofs. It's been peasant farmers sued by Monsanto for saving and planting last year's seeds. It's been the Salvadoran government spending millions of dollars to defend itself in the international trade courts against claims for damages in the hundreds of millions of dollars by both U.S. and Canadian mining corporations. El Salvador's infraction was denying mining permits to these companies on environmental grounds, even as previously mined communities feature rivers that have turned orange and groundwater's toxic. So now back to the USA. If the TPP passes, we will for the first time really get a non-hypothetical taste of what our little fish trading partners have had to contend with for years. That's because in the past, it's been US corporations that have largely been doing the suing in these unelected, unaccountable, corporation-friendly international tribunals that arbit these disputes. In contrast, now, the TPP will empower close to 19,000 corporations located in non-little fish countries. Australia, Canada, Japan, Malaysia, among others, to sue the U.S. and by extension our local and state governments as well. That was uh, Dennis Chinoy, and that program aired back on February 10th here on WERU on Maine Currency. He was speaking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. <clears throat> Excuse me, one of many people who spoke over a couple of hours to the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission, and uh, not a single person spoke in favor of the TPP. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. Maine Currents is independent local news, views, and culture. We're here every Wednesday from 4 to 5. I'm Amy Brown here with John Greenman, who's engineering. And we are happy to take your calls in between clips. We're looking back over 2016, some of the topics that we covered and giving you a taste of what's up there on the archives if you want to go back and listen, but also inviting you to call in and let us know any of your thoughts about 2016 as well as any thoughts moving into 2017, both personally, politically, what your wishes and hopes are, and also for main Currents. Under the rubric of local independent news, views, and culture, what kinds of issues would you like to see us covering? If you have any suggestions that fall into any of those categories, give us a call. The number is 469-0500, 469-0500, or toll-free 866 625-9378. Again, 1-866-625-9378. If you call while a clip is playing, we'll just put you on hold for a couple minutes. As soon as the clip is over, we will get to you, and John can even tell you how long the clip is going to be. This next one was recorded back in the spring at the University of Maine. Uh, Angus King came to the University of Maine along with Lucas St. Clair to talk about the possibility of a national monument with the Quimby family land. And this is uh, Lucas St. Clair, part of what he had to say that day. The idea of creating a national monument in the Katahdin region grew out of hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations, one cup of coffee at a time. And over the past several years, we've listened and we've refined our proposal to make it unique to Maine. The foundation would like to donate 87,500 acres of land that it owns to create a new national monument east of Baxter State Park in the Katahdin region. During my time talking to so many of you, we've heard your concerns and have worked to address them. Outdoor recreation is part of the heritage and the culture of our state, and we've made sure that the activities that we all care about will be permanently protected. With the creation of this monument, snowmobile trails east of the east branch of the Penobscot River will be guaranteed forever, and hunting on the same land will also be guaranteed forever. 
We talk a lot about the economic benefits of the National Monument, and those are real and they're important. And I know snowmobiling and hunting are critical to the economy in Northern Maine. But they're more than that. They're also part of the fabric of these communities and the family traditions of people who live in the Catawba region, and I promise through this proposal they will be protected. In addition to contributing the land, we will create a $40 million endowment. That endowment will offset the costs of maintenance and operations. And practically speaking, that endowment means that investments could start soon after designation, putting people to work quickly. Conservation is important to me, and it's important to our foundation. But we're also committed to making an investment in the Katahdin region that will create jobs and help to spark economic revitalization in communities having a hard time. studies predict that a new national park unit would create hundreds of jobs while drawing new families and new energy to a part of the state that needs both. The struggles of Maine's paper industry are no secret. Five mills have closed in the last three years and hundreds of people have lost their jobs and we feel for them. A new national monument isn't a silver bullet. No one thing is. But a major recreational attraction in the interior of northern Maine can be a part of a new economic foundation that will create, create opportunities for new businesses to start and existing businesses to grow. All told, all told, the National Monument will endow, and endowment represents a $100 million investment in the Katahdin region of the state. And, of course, as you know, uh, President Obama did designate the National Monument later on that year. That was recorded back in May, and by August that uh, designation had been made. If you'd like to hear what people had to say on both sides of the issue, however, you can go to the archives at weru.org for that program, which aired on May 18th, and uh, we had not just the people who were making the presentations, uh, which included who you just heard, Lucas St. Clair from the Quimby family, it's Roxanne Quimby's son, but also uh, Senator Angus King and Jonathan Jarvis, the director of the U.S. National Park Service. They gave their presentations, but then they also heard from the public pro and con. So if you'd like to check that out, that's on the archives at weru.org. If you have any thoughts about any of these things uh, or any wishes or thoughts as we move into 2017, give us a call. Like I've been saying, 469-0500. We'll put you on in between the clips that we're playing here today. Otherwise, just sit back and enjoy the clips and know that if you want to hear more of these programs, all of these are taken from programs that are available on our archives. Let's see. The next one we have coming up came from... Uh, not the first multipartisan panel that we did, and we did have some shifts in who was on that panel over the months, but we started meeting back in March of 2016, and by summer we were uh, twice a month, most months, getting together to talk about the upcoming presidential elections and also some of the ballot questions here in Maine. And uh, I think this is, yeah, this is just going to be uh, the crew introducing themselves for and saying a few words at one of those, uh, but you can hear as it evolved what they thought about the ballot issues and how their thinking evolved about who they were going to be voting for for president at the archives. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. And today we are once again hosting a tripartisan or maybe even quadropartisan discussion of the upcoming presidential election. My guests in the studio today are local Republicans Renee Trust and Billy Bob Falkingham, Democrats Margaret Hanna and Tim Wilson, and Betsy Gerald at Green. I'm going to have them each say a few words, and then we'll be opening the phone lines and taking your calls. But before we do that, I want to just repeat what I said last time, which is we're going to keep this discussion civil. Tough questions are absolutely encouraged. And like I said, we'll be opening the phone lines and welcoming you to do that. But we're also going to all keep in mind that we're all still going to be neighbors and that we're Mainers. And regardless of who becomes president, that's probably not going to change. We're going to keep things civil. Also, uh, swearing is an FCC no-no. So that's the one other thing that we will shut down any calls for doing. 
So uh, I think we started on my left last time, so we'll start on my right this time. Have everyone say a few words, introduce yourself so people get to associate your voice with your name and maybe what candidate you support and why, and then we'll open the phone lines. And I have all kinds of questions, and these folks have come up with questions for each other, so we've got a lot to cover. Hi, I'm Betsy Gerald. I'm a former state party chair for the Maine Green Independent Party. I am supporting um, the probable Green can, uh, nominee, who's Dr. Jill Stein, um, because, and I support any of the Green candidates because they are non-corporate candidates. All right. Hi, Tim Wilson uh, from Belfast. I'm an independent Democrat, I'd say, and I, my measuring stick for picking candidates is health, peace, and prosperity, so I feel like Bernie is the clear choice in the major parties, and that's why I'm uh, supporting him. All right. Hey, I'm Billy Bob Falkenham from Winter Harbor, Maine, and I'm a libertarian-leaning Republican. Um, I don't endorse anyone yet for president, but I do endorse Bruce Proloquin for Congress. All right. That microphone up. We're sharing mics here. Hi, I'm Renee. Um, thanks for having me back, Amy. And back. Um, I'm from Franklin, and I'm just a political grassroots activist, and I don't really have a candidate either, but I am enjoying the discussion and look forward to today's show. Hi, thank you for having me back. Okay. I'm Margaret Hanna from Blue Hill, Maine, and I am uh, going to follow Rolling Stone's endorsement. I endorse Hillary Clinton for president. Rolling Stone, in their endorsement, said she is the most qualified candidate for the presidency in modern times, and I agree. All right, so that was one of our several uh, programs that we did with our multipartisan panel that evolved, and there were a few different players later on in the program, but you get the picture. There are several of those if you uh, want to go back and check the archives. John, you... Well, we had an anonymous caller who didn't want to go on the air, and actually, just as well, the line was terrible. Oh, we, <laughs> we have that sometimes, yeah, too, yeah. yeah. But, um, no, she was very, very supportive and very uh, thankful for what you've been doing, Amy. Um, I, this is a little bit strange, you know, from one student to the other saying you're doing a great job. But this is what she said. She was very appreciative of all these different issues that were brought up and how they were brought up and how they were dealt with. So kudos and thanks. Oh, well, thank you, anonymous caller. And uh, we appreciate that feedback. And if anyone wants to call in with any ideas about issues that we haven't been covering, keeping in mind the show is local, independent, local news, views, and culture. Uh, sometimes we're covering things like the TPP, but with a local angle, you know, a main meeting with main people speaking about it. Give us a call and let us know what you think about 2017, especially if there are things that, uh, if you listen to the show regularly and there's some glaring omission of something that our mission is to cover things that aren't being really widely covered by the corporate mainstream media, let us know what you think. And also, if you want to just you know, sort of soapbox style, talk about 2016 or 2017. We'll put you on in between the clips here, 4690500 locally or 1-866-625-9378. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. Up next, uh, in the early summer, late spring, there was a, uh, a town meeting in Orland to discuss removing the Orland Dam. There were several groups that had come together, federal, local groups, NGOs had come together. There was a lot of funding available if the town wanted to explore removing the dam and, and whatever other associated costs came from it. And there were people who spoke on both sides and people who uh, raised concerns about keeping it and people who had concerns about, you know, not keeping it. Eventually, they did end up voting to not remove the dam. But one of the pieces of uh, one of the people who spoke, who testified, was a research biologist who worked on the Penobscot River Mercury study. And what she had to say, this is probably unchanged and really important information. So this is one of the pieces that I picked to uh, share with you again, just if, for no other reason than to, in case you missed it, to make this information available. I was uh, asked to do a project looking at the mercury concentrations in the Naramissic River, which I did last fall, and produced a report that many of you got copies of when you were here. There, oh, and, yes, uh, today on the blog spot, um, uh, Catherine Schmidt did a summary of that report, and there are links to uh, the report that I did on the Naramissic 
and to the broader study of the mercury contamination in the Penobscot. The, um, first, just to correct something, it's not just a hot spot of mercury in the Orland River. The entire lower Penobscot is highly contaminated with mercury. And that's the reason why Judge Woodcock ruled last year that the responsible party uh, from the Holter Chem plant, Mallinckrodt, had, is required by law to clean up the lower Penobscot. An engineering firm has been hired and they are looking at ways to remove the mercury from the system, looking at the best way of doing that. Uh, the mercury in the um, Orland River downstream of the dam averages around a thousand parts per billion in the sediment. Uh, background concentration for coastal rivers is less than 40 parts per billion. So this is it's a highly contaminated area, both in the Orland, in the East Channel, in the Lower Penobscot. What I did was look at the mercury concentration in the Naramissic itself and found that mercury is already passing over the top of the dam and accumulating in the sediment upstream of the dam. We found concentrations um, around 300 uh, parts per billion in the uh, area, in the sediment, just upstream of the dam. The concentration is around 150 when you go between the Castine Bridge and the Route 1 Bridge, and then it continues decline, to decline as you move upstream. So mercury is already moving into those surface sediments. There may be more mercury already present in the deeper sediments of the Naramissic. I only looked at the top three centimeters. I didn't go down to depth. And you folks know that the dam has failed a couple times in the past due to storm events. Um, though some of those events occurred when mercury levels were even higher at the surface than they are now in the Penobscot. So it's possible that there's more mercury at depth in your sediment. More studies needed to define how much mercury is actually there. But the gradient of mercury, so that the higher concentrations are right next to the dam and then it declines as you move upstream toward Upper Falls Road, shows that mercury is still coming over the dam currently. The mercury in the Orland River is mobilized. It's picked up by tidal action and sloshes back and forth. And, you know, we've, um, it's important to recognize that any uh, dam removal would be best coordinated with the cleanup of the Orland River and the Lower Penobscot. You don't want to further increase the mercury moving into the Naramissic. But as I understand it, that is part of this study, to look at how um, the dam removal can be coordinated with the cleanup of the Lower Penobscot. And again, that dam removal in Orland did not happen. The uh, That was uh, Diane Kopeck, by the way. Uh, she's a research biologist who worked on the Penobscot River Mercury Study, and she mentioned a blog. The blog is still up. I just went and checked. It's called orlandfutures.blogspot.com. Again, orlandfutures.blogspot.com. And that whole program aired on Maine Currents on June 3rd, 2016. If you want to go back to the archives, there are links to to both that blog spot and as well as other reports. John, you were at that meeting. Yes, and uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting was that this uh, proposal to take down the dam was partially going to be financed by NOAA um, and also by the Nature Conservancy. And that whole that whole uh, possibility of <laughs> that, that was perfect timing for your phone to have a loon signal. <laughs> that's, that's my call. <laughs> The, um, the, the idea was that these two uh, enterprises were going to be offering substantial uh, funds to help, that, uh, help the dam de, um, 
the activation of that. Yeah. Um, but there were so many people in, in not only in the audience, but in the town who not, were not only concerned about the mercury, but also concerned about the change of the look of downtown. I mean, right. it was a really... A, a, and firefighting, too. That firefighting water was reservoir, a yeah. So it was very much up in the air, and, and um, I think that's probably one of the, or two of the major reasons that it didn't pass. There was a big, big movement to open up the uh, the river for the flow of, of fish and make it uh, more uh, easy, easier for people, for, for fish to get upstream. Right. And several people who talked said that this dam is not in great shape. It's going to eventually go down on its own if, if no action is taken. That's was right. It could be sooner the impression than later. I got. So yeah. at some point, yeah, either planned or not planned, uh, the impression from listening to the speakers was that dam's not going to be a, be around forever. Um, but who knows? <laughs> the next uh, clip that we're going to hear here on Main Currents is from a rally in Bangor right after the Pulse nightclub shooting took place. Um, the next speaker that I get to introduce, I want to say, is a proud lesbian mom and also a good friend of mine. I want to introduce the mayor of Brewer, Bev Eulenhaek. Thank you. Good evening and thank you all for coming. Your presence here is so incredibly important to so many of us. So I've thought a lot about what I was going to say tonight. A lot. I, I think even on Facebook I threatened to drop F-bombs and I might. I apologize if I do. <laughs> I'm not going to be as eloquent as the other speakers tonight. I'm going to tell you a personal story because for me this is personal. It's painful and it's too close for me to worry about being eloquent. You see, over the weekend I had that Obama, Trayvon Martin moment. I knew that this could have been me, like Mark, Mark had said, this could have been me in a bar dancing with friends, celebrating pride. And I know that that applies to so many of you. In fact, 20 years ago, okay, so I am a mom at this point, so it's not me in a bar. Um, <laughs> because I, don't, I just don't have the energy anymore. Um, but it, it could have been any of us. So let me tell my story. I came out at the age of 21. On my 21st birthday, my friends took me to a bar called Wall Street. It's a two-story warehouse bar in Columbus, Ohio. It was amazing. I understand it's closed now. My friends took me not because they knew I was gay. I had not come out yet to them. I knew they didn't. But they took me there because it was a place to dance and to laugh and to be comfortable. And because, let's face it, the dance music's better. There are stereotypes, there are also truisms. <laughs> I had a grand time that night. I felt wonderful. I felt safe. I felt at peace. I saw other people like me, and they saw me. I laughed freely because I could. That building was full of gays and lesbians and bisexuals of all races and colors and ages. It was also full of drag queens and trans folks who look better in a dress than I will ever hope to. <laughs> but as comfortable as I was in that bar, I wasn't as comfortable in my own skin outside that bar. I was dealing with questions like, what's gonna happen when my parents find out? What will my siblings say? Will I lose my job? Will I be allowed to go to grad school? What? plan do I have in case I get disowned? And I developed that plan because everyone that I knew who was gay and lesbian in the 90s, much less the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, had a plan. Because we knew what could happen, we saw it, we saw others have to use their plan, and it's not fun. We had Wall Street. We had that bar, that sanctuary, that place where you might get a drink or a bite to eat 
or to simply be there for a couple of hours. And that's part of what really stings about this incident to me is that it wasn't just a hate crime. It was a hate crime in one of our sanctuaries, in one of our safe spaces. This is also a safe space, and I'm so glad so many of you are here. I truly, truly appreciate it. Things have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. We fought and won the right to not lose our jobs, although it still happens. We've won the right to be married in all 50 states. And in addition to many of the legal protections that I absolutely did not expect to see in my lifetime, we also won some social wars. Those social wars made it acceptable for us to live our lives out loud. We have an out lesbian mayor in the city of Brewer. <laughs> And I'm still surprised. <laughs> but we haven't won safety and we haven't won comfort. So I was very specific in my attire for tonight's event. I'm wearing black because we mourn. We mourn those we never got to know. We mourn our sanctuary. We mourn that little piece of our souls that never thought that this could happen. And I'm also wearing red. And I thought I saw Corey Haskell in the crowd and a couple other folks who worked on the 2009 marriage campaign. And for those that were there in Augusta in 2009 at the Civic Center with 4,000 people dressed in red, red for love, you know you can't wear red without thinking of love. I don't have any amazing words of wisdom that will make this feel all better. My kids are still young enough that they believe me when I tell them I can kiss their boo-boos and make it all better. <laughs> I can't. I wish I could. What I can tell you is this. I will continue to wear red for love. I will continue to fight for that safety and comfort for all. I will continue to wear red. I will continue to live out loud. And I figure as long as I am reminiscing about the 90s and dancing, I might as well do a quote from the 80s from a movie. As you know, when you're doing kitschy, you might as well go full board. <laughs> from the oldest of times, people danced for a number of reasons. They danced in prayer, or so that their crops could be plentiful, or so that their hunt would be good. And they danced to stay physically fit and show their community spirit, and they dance to celebrate. There is a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to laugh, a time to weep, a time to mourn, and there is a time to dance. See, this is our time to dance. It's our way of celebrating life. It's the way it was in the beginning. It's the way it always has been. It's the way it should be now. In about two weeks, Bangor will celebrate our own version of pride. We have no bar, but we will make this city a sanctuary. I suggest we dance. Thank you. That was then Mayor Brewer Beverly Eulenhake speaking right after the Pulse shooting at a very well-attended vigil that took place outside City Hall in Bangor. That uh, full program is archived at weru.org. It's the uh, June 15th edition of Main Currents. Another thing we do here on Main Currents as we do our year in review is uh, storytelling as much as we can. I love to go to local storytelling events or have storytellers here. Keep me posted about any happening in your neighborhood by emailing news at weru.org. Uh, here's one of the storytellers that we had on the program last year. <coughs> I want to get on to our next storyteller, who is Amy Rader. Uh, she is a, another storyteller that we first heard at Queen City Cellar Tellers in Bangor. 
And her story about a little dog named Belle had the audience laughing and crying, especially me. I hope she's not going to make me cry again this time. Uh, very poignant story. Uh, Amy's the director of education at the Penobscot Theatre in Bangor and is currently in the middle of a summer drama program. So she says to tell you if she seems flustered, that's why. And she also performs with Improv Acadia and Bar Harbor. And would like to say thanks to WERU for this opportunity to which we say no. Thank you, Amy Rader, and welcome. <laughs> Before I was a resident, a permanent resident in Maine, I was summer people. You know, summer people, summer not. <laughs> One of these summers, in the middle of an existential crisis of epic proportions, I solo hiked the west face of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. Dumbest idea ever. First of all, I was emotionally fragile. Don't hike alone when you'd rather be writing Tori Amos lyrics in your journal and artfully weeping you will be sorry. Second of all, it was raining. Very few hikes are good in the rain as most mountains tend to get slippery and hateful when wet. Third of all, I told people I was hiking a different mountain. If you solo hike, you must tell someone where the hell you'll be, if only so they can identify your broken moose gnawed body 10 years on when a park ranger accidentally trips over your bones. Fourth of all, I thought I was a better hiker than I actually am. <laughs> Suffice it to say, in 09, I found myself crawling up the side of the tallest mountain in Acadia National Park, weeping. At the top of the mountain, I noticed my hands were bleeding. I couldn't stop shaking. I have nightmares about that trail to this day. My wedding ring still has scratches from the granite face of the mountain. A normal person would have stopped hiking or at least have stopped solo hiking, but I am not normal. For the past few years, I've been stepping out in the early hours of summer days to drive into the park and hike something on any day that I have free. I hiked Penobscot and Sargent, lovely. I hiked Pematic, majestic. I hiked the north face of Cadillac and Door Mountain, gorgeous. I hiked the South Bubble, the North Bubble, and Connor's Nubble. They were ubbly. In short, I was determined that my initial mistake was not the measure of me. Then one day, I set out on another solo hike. I went up Huguenot Head to Champlain Mountain via the Beechcroft Trail and down via the Bear Brook Trail, and it was fucking terrible. <laughs> I am so used to hiking paths that are lined with trees, so you're not actually aware of your altitude until you reach the summit. Huguenot Head was a series of staircases without a railing where you could plummet to your death at any moment. I told myself, you can just turn back if you want to. Don't be proud. I answered myself back, no way in hell. It's just going to be scarier going back down. And then I faced my worst fear ever, what the guidebook listed as a very steep climb over smooth rock. What that means is that you're like a quintillion feet in the air walking on a surface as smooth as glass and that surface is at a 65 degree angle. And there's nothing but smooth rock around you. No trees, no jutting out rocks. If you slip, you will plummet that quintillion feet to your death. As I do in these situations, these tense situations, in all tense situations, I started to sing. Specifically, I started to sing my Brave song. It's a simple song with a rudimentary melody whose lyrics vary depending on what's scaring me at that time. This time, most of it was, Oh God, please keep me from dying of hubris. <laughs> I sang and I sang as I crouch ran across smooth rock from cairn to cairn. Finally, the ground evened out and I saw that signpost that marked the summit. I threw my arms in the air in victory. I was safe. Nothing would be scary from here on out. Yes! I took a picture of that signpost at the summit, smug in the notion that I had conquered my fears. I was happy. I was validated. I was wrong. <laughs> as soon as I turned away from the sign marking the summit, I noticed that all around me, the land sank away at alarming angles toward the ocean. I looked at my guidebook and headed toward the path for my descent, only to see a rock cairn poised on the edge of a horrific ledge that seemed to drop off into nothingness. And that marked the trail that I was supposed to take. The wind blew hard. 
I staggered. I almost fell. I inched toward the cairn to see if I could make it past and advance down. The drop behind the cairn was precipitous, so I did the only thing I could think of to do on that bald face of rock a thousand feet in the air. I sat down and I scooted along the rock on my butt. I scooted along for maybe three-tenths of a mile. Might not sound like much, but you try it. It's an eternity. I spent the better part of my time on Champlain Mountain looking like a poodle with parasites. I kept singing my idiot song as I scooted and crawled and slumped down the mountain. Verses included lyrics such as, When I have children, I hope they have better impulse control than I do. Or, Don't let me die here, God, because I'm pretty sure that my husband would screw up my funeral. I was singing full voice when a couple of hikers came out of the trees in front of me to head up the trail that I had been scooting down. If I were a more modest person, I suppose I would say that I was embarrassed by the fact that strangers caught me in the middle of me singing my brave song while sliding on my butt. Since I was 100% focused on survival, though, I'm pretty sure those nice folks think they ran into a mentally disturbed person. Well, I made a pack of one piece. I hated almost every middle of that minute of that hike, though. And I hate that I hated it. By that point, eight years into exploring Acadia National Park, I should know what I love and what I hate. I should know to avoid steep climbs over sheer stone. I should know that I fucking hate anything with a dramatic view because that usually means you're hanging on by your fingernails off the side of a cliff to enjoy that view. I should know that my time is valuable and is not to be spent on something that is destructive, terrifying, and horrible. Ultimately, that's the lesson I should have learned in 2009 before I let myself be emotionally beaten down enough to think I deserved to hike the west face of Cadillac in the rain. Don't hike what you think you deserve. Hike what you love. And that was Amy Rader. She was one of the storytellers at WERU storytelling event that we held in Bucksport this summer. And you can hear all of the storytellers from that event by going to Main Currents. Uh, both the August 3rd and August 17th editions had storytellers on it. We also have a category on our archives at WERU.org called Main Stories. And any of the storytelling events that we've covered over the years can be found there. Almost all of them have some kind of focus on Maine. We hope to do more. So keep us posted about your storytelling events. And if you are someone who's a local storyteller who would like to be on my list of people that I get in touch with when we have more storytelling events that WERU puts on, please get in touch. You can email me at news at WERU.org. And we've got a couple of things on the schedule for January I want to let you know about on Main Currents. That was just a review of some of the programs from 2016. Looking ahead to 2017, next week we're planning to have some of the organizers of uh, the marches that will be taking place both here in Maine and, excuse me, in D.C., and specifically the Women's March that would be taking place around the inauguration in D.C. and to talk about that. And the week after that, for the inauguration, the plan is right now that um, I will be going along with Meredith DeFrancesco down to D.C. to cover the inauguration protests as well as the Women's March from D.C. We will be... uh, most likely, if things work out according to plan, posting a lot of live Facebook videos on the WERU Facebook page as they happen. So if you don't already, be sure you like the WERU Facebook page. And that's uh, facebook.com slash WERUFM. And then on the 25th of January, our multipartisan panel will have a reunion. We'll be getting back together, possibly for what may become a regular series. We've got two things on the docket to discuss. Uh, Both of them were proposed by members of the committee. Renee, who uh, started out as our Republican-leaning libertarian, I think she ended the program as a libertarian-leaning Republican, but she's got quite an independent streak. She wants to talk about some of the labels we use, terms like progressive, what they mean, and uh, we'll expand that to other terms 
platforms as well. And Ken Gleason, who was our Hillary Clinton supporter on the panel, suggested that we all get together and start talking about what are some of the things that we can all agree on. What are some of the bottom line things in our community that are important to all of us when we remove all the political labels and leanings? And we'll invite you, obviously, as listeners, to call in and join on that discussion as well. Not many calls today, and the only one who did call was uh, off air, but I still am interested in hearing what other things you would like us to be covering in 2017. So if you're just shy about being on the air, email. Again, it's Amy Brown. My email address is news at weru.org. If your suggestions wouldn't work for Maine Currents, I also can forward them to the hosts of the other programs as well. So as always, not just now, but anytime, send your program suggestions to news at weru.org and we'll pass them along to the appropriate people. And uh, that's it for Maine Currents today. I want to thank John Greenman, my uh, engineer slash co-host in the in the other room. Appreciate John's help today. And uh, you've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU. We're here every Wednesday at four o'clock. Stay tuned. We've got Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead. Larry has put in an appearance. He's getting ready to put on a great jazz show for you tonight all here because of your support and we thank you greatly for all all your generosity in helping us get past our fundraising goal on Saturday here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting us. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. You are listening to your community radio station, WERU-FM, at 89.9 in Blue Hill and at 99.9 in Bangor and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Let's check that forecast for the greater Bangor, mid-coast, and down-east regions.